stand and let's uh, join our voices together. How great the chasm that lay between us How high the mountain I could not climb In desperation I turned to heaven And spoke your name into the night then through the darkness, your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished, the end is written, Jesus Christ, my living hope. could imagine so great a mercy what heart could fathom such boundless grace the God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame the cross has spoken, I am forgiven. The King of Kings calls me His own. Beautiful Saviour, I'm yours forever. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Hallelujah. Praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah. Death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name. Jesus Christ, my living hope. the morning that sealed the promise your buried body began to breathe out of the silence the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me then came the morning that sealed the promise your buried body began to breathe out of the silence the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me Jesus yours is the victory Hallelujah, praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah, death has lost its grip on me. 
You have broken every chain There's salvation in your name Jesus Christ, my living hope Hallelujah Praise the one who set me free Hallelujah Death has lost its grip on me You have broken every chain There's salvation in your name Jesus Christ, my living hope Jesus Christ, my living hope Jesus Christ, my living hope Thank you, Dave. Please take a seat. Bear with me as I perform magical wonders of technological breakthroughs. Um, now, there are three notices tonight. Get in. It's worked. Um, there are three notices tonight. The first one is, uh, this week we are in life groups. Uh, if you're not in a life group and you'd like to be in one, or you don't know where your life group meets because you haven't been for so long, then please come and see me at the FYI area at the back and I can point you in the right direction. Secondly, also from the FYI area is one of these packs uh, about a time to build. We would love you to pick one of these up if you haven't yet got one. The third message involves Tony Sage, and I'm scanning the room, but can't find him. Whoa! Alan, he's on his way. Here he comes. Let's give him a slow drummer clap. Now we can speed up a bit, just to show other people in the church have timing. Alan, great to see you. Thank you. Thank you for that wonderful introduction, everybody. <laughs> Right, um, just a quick plug, on next Saturday, the 29th of October, um, some of you may have noticed that uh, I play the drums. This is up the back there behind the screen, making a lot of noise. Anyway, one of the bands I play with is a big band called the Redstone Community Big Band, and we play all sorts of music from... Glenn Miller, Count Basie, a lot of you are too young to know that sort of stuff. Beatles stuff, maybe some of you are too young to know about the Beatles as well. But they're great arrangements. It's a 17-piece big band, lots of brass. Um, they're really good, really exciting. And they're appearing here, as I said, on 29th of October. We're, the profits um, are going to two charities, um, Macmillan Cancer Support, and Sharing Lives, which is a charity that's very close to us, as I'm sure you, you know. Tickets are £10 each. Uh, they're available um, through the church website, or you can buy them um, at the desk or pay on the night. So it would be great to see as many of you bring your friends, bring your family, spread the word. It's only a week to go, and uh, we're hoping for a really good turnout. So, uh, yeah, if you can come, that would be absolutely great. Thanks, Gareth. Big band, big night, big cause. 
So it would be great to see you there. Now, welcome uh, back, if you've been before, to God's big picture. If you've not been before, what we're trying to do here is uh, put together the story of the Bible so that we understand the whole, so that we understand better the, the part of the whole. We understand the piece because we understand the whole story. That's what we're trying to do tonight. And I'm going to get you to do some of that work on your table. So have a look around. Just check that you are able and willing to talk to the people that you're sat with. Time to move now if you want to offend somebody. But I am going to get you to do some work on your tables. Great. You've all stayed there. And this is what we're going to start with. What is the story so far? This gives you a little clue. Tonight we're back in part two of the partial kingdom. This is what we've done so far. There's so many Ps there. What's the story? Two minutes on your table. What have we covered so far? What do you think we're covering tonight? And if this is the first time with us, I'm really sorry. You can take the quiet approach and listen, or you can just blag your way through these two minutes. Go for it. Make some noise. Chat to the people to, with you. Okay, this also will give you a little bit of a clue. This is a recap slide. So we started off with the patterned kingdom, and we looked at the start in Genesis 1 and 2. Then we saw the descent down as Adam and Eve uh, sinned, the perished kingdom. Then in Genesis 12, we saw the promised kingdom uh, when God made this promise to Abraham. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. 
Now, tonight in the partial kingdom part two, we're going to see many of those promises look like they're coming true. So look out for those, God's people in God's place, with God's blessing, but also look at the end, blessing the nations through the blessings that God has given them. That's where we're going tonight. Last week, we looked at uh, salvation coming by substitute. Steve took us through that the lamb will be slain and the blood will be put on the sides and over the door frame and the angel of death will pass over those houses. Now, you can look at that part of Israel's history and say, what a cruel God who kills people. Or you can look at that part of God's salvation and say, wow, he's making a really big statement about being under his blessing and the type of God that he is with those plagues. But he's also, as Steve took us through, gloriously picturing the death of the Lord Jesus on our behalf as Jesus dies on a cross and his blood is the way that you and I can be rescued. If you remember nothing else tonight, remember that. Tonight, where are we going? Well, God's people are going to be under God's rule and God's blessing, in God's place, uh, ruled over by God's king. Now, last time we looked far more at God's people and God's rule and blessing. Tonight, we're looking at the second half there, God's place. There's going to be a lot about the nation, the, the physical land that Israel are going to inherit. And then we're going to look at this whole theme of kingship. And what we'll see at the end is that we don't just need a king, but we need a particular type of king with a particular type of thing couldn't quite make that rhyme. Let's pray, and then we'll get into the partial kingdom. Father God, we thank you for the story of your word, the Bible. Thank you that every page speaks of the Lord Jesus. But we're not always good at seeing him. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes. Don't make us big heads with Bible knowledge. Make us those, your people, who worship you in spirit and in truth, we pray for your glory. Amen. Fantastic. So we're looking at the partial kingdom, uh, and we're going to look at it under these three lenses. The place we need, the king we need, and the wisdom we need. The place we need, the king we need, the wisdom we need. If you're a clock watcher, yes, we're going to take a little bit longer on the first one than we are on the second two, so don't worry too much. The place, the king, the wisdom that we need. I want you to imagine a foggy morning. Most things in Westminster are foggy at the moment, aren't they? Uh, um, a foggy morning where you recognize roughly where things are. This, this is a great bit of, you get these mornings over half term, don't you? You open your front door and you think, where is the car? You know roughly where things are, but because of the fog, you can't quite see them. That's a, a picture of tonight. But also, think back to Westminster. Westminster is a particular place of power, and it's a particular place of beauty. 
So when fog descends on Westminster, both literally and metaphorically, it's a tragedy because you can't see those glorious things like rule administered rightly, properly. And that's what we're going to see tonight. So we're going to see a partial fulfillment, but not a full fulfillment. Now, I'm going to get you to do some more work. This is really important. How does this part of the Bible help us in life? Um, Everything at the moment in the nation of Israel is a bit of a mess. It will continue as a mess for quite a while, but out of the mess comes a king and a plan, and it will all point to Jesus. Here's the question. How does the clarity in the fog, the drawing back and looking at the big picture, how does that clarity help us in our daily lives? I know that's a tricky question, but I don't just want to do Bible big ed stuff. I want to talk about life on Monday. How does seeing the Messiah come out of the mess help you on a Monday morning? Go. Okay, grab your Bibles. You can talk more about that at the end. That really would help you. Um, That's the question we've just answered. The place we need. I want you to, in your Bibles, to go to Numbers chapter 10. And we're going to look at verses 11 to 12. We're going to pick up the story as the children of Israel set out and travel in the desert of Paran. And they listen to God, and God is with them. Let's pick up um, Numbers chapter 10, 11 to 12. On the twelfth day of the second month of the second year, the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle of the covenant law. Then the Israelites set out from the desert of Sinai and traveled from place to place until the cloud came to rest in the desert of Paran. They set out this first time at the Lord's command through Moses. So life is so easy, life is so simple. When the Lord says that they go, they go. When the Lord says they stop, they stop. They get to the edge of the promised land and they send some spies in to have a look. 
Now the Lord had promised the land. The Lord always keeps his promises, doesn't he? When the spies come back and they report, the people are scared. Look at Numbers chapter 13, 27 to 28. This is so much like us. Numbers 13, 27 to 28. Then Moses gave this account. We went into the land to which you sent us. And it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful. And the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. So they debate. Turn up Numbers 14. We'll pick up their decision in Numbers 14 and verse 3. But this provides a pattern for us. Verse 3. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. They've turned from the Lord leading them to the edge of the promised land that he'd promised them and yet fear grips them and they're not willing to go in. But do you see the tension, the tension between belief and unbelief? In the face of unbelief, God's chosen leader steps up. He calls the people to put their trust in the Lord. He provides a way and will return to that theme in kingship. So, verse 5. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he'll lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of the meeting to all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I've performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them. But I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. Rejection of the land, you see, is rejection of God. Failing to trust the promise is not wavering. It is unbelief. And that tension runs all through the next book that we'll look at, the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is written on the edge of the land. But the big question in Deuteronomy is, will they choose blessing or will they choose curses? And we're going to look at that in Deuteronomy chapter 28. So we're going to skip straight to the end of Deuteronomy. It is an excellent book, though. I feel gutted that we can't get a bit more into it. But you will appreciate that because it won't be 10 o'clock when we leave. So, Deuteronomy chapter 28, we're going to pick it up at verse 9. This is what 
is preached as they're on the edge of the land. Verse 9. The Lord will establish you as his holy people, as he promised you on oath, if you keep the commands of the Lord your God and walk in obedience to him. Listen, obedience, blessing. Disobedience, cursing. Verse 10. Then all the people on earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they will fear you. The Lord will grant you abundant prosperity in the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock, and the crops of your ground. Or as a friend of mine said, babies, barns, and battles. In the land he swore to your ancestors to give you, the Lord will open the heavens, the storehouse of his beauty, and send rain on your land in season, and to bless all the work of your hands. You will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. The Lord will make you the head, not the tail, if you pay attention to the commands of the Lord your God that I give you this day and carefully follow them. You will always be at the top, never at the bottom. Do not turn aside from any of the commands I give you today, to the right or the left, following other gods and serving them. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God, and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. And Moses dies, and the question is just hanging there. How will they be? It's like, the, well, it's like these speakers hanging above my head. Will they fall? I hope not, but there is an if. There's a tension in the room now. Ah. Oh. But that tension is over the people of Israel. It's this big if. If they are faithful, then God will bless them. If they are unfaithful, curses will come. If. It's a wonderful word. If. Let's pick it up in Joshua chapter 21. Are they going to be faithful or unfaithful? Joshua 21, verse 40. Well, I'll read from 43. I know the slide says 44. So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give to their ancestors, and they took possession of it and settled there. If, yes, it's come. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their ancestors. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. If, yes, not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Everyone was fulfilled. Yay! God's people are in God's place under God's rule and enjoying his blessing. Is this due to God's blessing? Excellent. Is this due to God's blessing? Yes. Careful of the trick question. Is this due to the people's obedience? Yes. Oh, not so confident there, were you? Yes, it is. The people are obedient. So what happens if the people turn away? How dependent are the promises to the people's obedience. So Joshua warns them in Joshua chapter 23. Turn over there. 
verse 12, he, he warns them to be faithful. In fact, I'd love to read loads more, but for the sake of time, I will skip on. I will skip on to verses 12 to 13. But if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they'll become snares and traps for you, whips on your back and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Can sin prevent the promises from coming true? Discuss. This is your interlude moment. I'm going to give you two minutes on this. Can the people's sin stop God's promises coming true? Or to put it another way, slightly less naughty, who's stronger, God or sin? Okay, if you're in the middle of a really meaty theological discussion, great, but uh, I've got a friend that says one of the ways that we stay away from really awkward questions is by intellectualizing. So if you are intellectualizing right now and you're in the middle of a deep and theological thing, personalize it. What's that got to do with you? So again, on Monday morning, what has this this relationship between God's faithfulness, goodness, power, got to do with our obedience, where we waver between obedience and disobedience. What's that got to do in what God has for you, even tomorrow morning? I'll just give you a minute on that. Be personal. Go. Now, that question in both 
the theological academic sense, how does it work out, and in the personal what's this got to do with me is vitally important in this next section of the Bible. We're going to try and go from Judges to two Chronicles. And it's all about this question. How does it work out? In what sense do the people have to be obedient? And are the promises conditional on that? And in what sense is God doing his own thing, even in spite of people's sin? Yes. And Mike Tyndall will be available at the end to answer all of those questions. So the king, this is what focuses this, this big next theme, the king, the king we need. And the king we need was, was shown to us in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He, is he mankind or is he a the saviour. Yes. Then in Genesis 49 verse 10 we get another big clue. Jacob gathers his sons to him and says the ruler will come from Judah. And look at this for a promise in Genesis 49 verse 10. The scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. God's going to send a king. The obedience of the nations shall be his. A bit more of a clue in Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 20. Moses gives instructions about a future king, and says that the future king must sit under God's rule. Verse 14 of chapter 17. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, and have taken possession of it, and have settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself. Remember that one, not many horses. Or, or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. We must, he must not take many wives. Remember that one, no horses, not many horses, not many wives, or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Horses, wives, gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life. So he's to know God's word and internalize God's word. And follow carefully all the words of his law and these decrees and not consider him better than his fellow Israelites. And turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. The promise of a king 
is how the promise of God's rule and blessing is worked out. Now, the king is not just a national figurehead like we have, but it's a type of obedience that God has always demanded. So above everything else, the king is to be a follower of God. So you can say, I think I've put this as a slide, you could say, and something to watch out for as you read this section of the Bible, blessing comes as God rules in his kingdom through his king. Blessing comes as God rules in his kingdom through his king. By the way, blessing comes to us as God rules us through his king. Blessing comes to the world as God rules the world through his king. Or you could say it's not about you, it's about his king. That's what we see in 1 Samuel 17. Love 1 Samuel 17. Uh, let's flick there and then we're just going to flick back. So taking that theme, blessing comes as God rules in his kingdom through his king. Think of 1 Samuel 17. David, who's been anointed as the king, but is still a boy, faces Goliath. Humanly, there's absolutely no way that God's king can bring blessing against such a beast of a man. He was nine foot tall. But of course, we know the story that God's king or promised king, does make a mighty victory in God's strength. So, just keep a finger in one, Samuel. We'll be back there in a minute. But let me just run you speedily through the book of Judges. Judges is a cycle of sin and grace. The people sin they call out to God. He sends a rescuer in the form of a judge. Some of them are weird. Some of them are wonderful. The judge gains a victory and the people repeat the same pattern. Sin, judgment, foreign nation, call out to God. God hears, sends a rescuer and the pattern repeats and repeats and repeats. But it's generally a descending pattern. So think of it like a helter-skelter. Every time they go round the cycle, they get nearer the bottom. The people have the land. They're sometimes under God's rule, but sin is making it all fall apart. So we get this summary statement. Not there. We get a summary statement in Judges 21-25 that says this. In those days... Israel had no king. Everybody did as they saw fit. If only we had a king to lead them against the foreign nations and represent them before God. And then, back to 1 Samuel 17. It's jumping forward a bit in time, but what we get here is a king. David defeats Goliath before he's made king. But of course, they don't start there. They start with a false start. Flick back to 1 Samuel 8, verse 5. I'll read from verse 1, but, but look out for verse 5. When Samuel grew old, 
he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen. To all that the people are saying to you, it's not you they've rejected, but they've rejected me as their king. They've not, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they're doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know that what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. The people's motive was wrong. Instead of Wanting to, be, wanting to be led by God, they wanted to lead God. <laughs> Saul is anointed king, and he turns from the Lord. But then, of course, we get 1 Samuel 17. God's anointed king wins a great victory. And in this story, the king is a representative. The king fights the victory that the Israelites should have fought. They're too scared to fight it. They're quivering on the side. God's anointed king wins the victory to defeat their enemy. He's faithful when Saul is not. But he's not yet the king. He doesn't get crowned until 2 Samuel chapter 2. You can flick there now. So what's the point of the rest of Samuel? Why don't you just crown him? Get on with it. Well, God's king is only crowned after suffering. So he's shown that he's the anointed one. God can bring the victory he needs. But before the victory, he suffers. And that's where we get the Psalms. So we get a great gift from it. But isn't it interesting that God does it that way? And of course, we see the same pattern in Jesus. Back to David. After his coronation, there's a period of peace and prosperity. Is this it? Is this the serpent crusher? Well, God makes a covenant with David. 2 Samuel 7. Flick there. He's been crowned. 2 Samuel 7. Let's go to verse 14. I'd love to read more of it, but let's go to verse 14. God says, I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I'll punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. 
So is it dependent on obedience? Yeah. And yet look what happens next. In just one chapter, we go from those heights to a new depth of horror. In 2 Samuel 8, 14 to 15, we have a king with peace and success. Verse 13, and David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons throughout Edom and all the Edomites became subject to David. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. And yet, flick over to 2 Samuel 11. David fails to go to war, looks at and takes Bathsheba, sleeps with her, kills her husband, and everything falls apart. This is what Nathan says. Why do you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Amorites. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Is it dependent on obedience? Yep. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I'll take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. What you did in secret, I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. God is gracious with David. And the line passes to Solomon. And we get peace and prosperity under Solomon. Solomon builds the temple David did not. And then we get this amazing bit in 1 Kings 11. Flick over to there. 1 Kings... I've got the wrong reference. 1 Kings... 10, 1 Kings 10. The queen of Sheba comes to visit Solomon. We get peace and prosperity. The queen of Sheba comes to visit Solomon. And we get this picture of amazing prosperity. Look at chapter 10. And verse 23. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift, articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons, and spices, and horses and mules. Be careful that your king does not accumulate many wives, many horses, and much silver and gold. Well, Solomon did, and it all fell apart again. God's people were in God's place under God's rule. Think of what the people have and think of what they need. I've got this summary slide. Because it all fell apart with Solomon, we need a king who is a faithful king, where Israel were unfaithful. 
We need a king with a united heart where Israel were divided. We need a king who stands as our representative. We need a king who leads to victory over our enemies. We need a king who serves by establishing worship. And we need a king who brings eternal blessing that can never be taken away. We need King Jesus, which takes us on swiftly to wisdom, which we'll have to whiz through. What is wisdom? Well, wisdom is right living in light of God's instruction. Wisdom is like the tree of life. It's not just knowledge, but it's the application of God's truth. So where does this fit in? Have I just dropped another category on you to make you reel under the weight of all the distance that we've passed tonight? No, wisdom is the king we're lacking. The nation has known truth but it's lacked the ability to live under that truth. So they ask for a representative. David steps up. He represents well for most of his life, but is foolish and wayward. We need the ability to apply and live truth, not just knowledge. So we get this window in Solomon to look through. It all goes wrong with Solomon, but we get this window to look through of what wisdom looks like. So, that was the verse just there. Uh, 1 Kings 3, verses 7 to 9. When Solomon comes to the throne, above everything else, he asks for wisdom. Now, Lord my God, you've made your servant king in place of my father David, but I'm only a little child and I do not know how to carry out my great duties. Your servants here are among the people you've chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. Hear the echo of Genesis chapter 12. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people, to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? Who is able to live under the weight of your word and do it right. We need wisdom. Then, of course, we have this example of wisdom. In uh, the example of this wise ruling, two ladies come with a baby. Uh, chapter 3 and verse 19, we'll pick it up. Verse 20. So this lady gets up in the middle of the night and took her son that had died. She put him by her breast and put her dead son by my breast. The next morning I got up to nurse my son and he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, I saw that it wasn't my son that I'd born. So the woman said, no, the living one is my son. The dead one is yours. And the first one insisted, no, the dead one is yours. The living one is mine. And so they argued before the king. So they bring the king one son, two claimants. The king says, verse 23, the one who says, my son is alive and your son is dead, while the one that says, no, your son is dead and mine is alive. Then the king said, bring me a sword. So they brought a sword to the king. Then he gave an order, cut the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. Probably not the best parenting advice. 
The woman whose son was alive, deeply moved out of love for her son, said to the king, please, my Lord, give her the living baby. Don't kill him. But the other said, neither I nor you shall have him. Cut him in two. Then the king gave this ruling. Give the living baby to the first woman. Do not kill him, for she is his mother. When all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. Look at the reaction of the people. Amazement. Because here comes not just God's word, but the application of it into a lived experience in life. They held the king in awe. Doesn't that look like Jesus? So, of course, then this queen, the queen of Sheba, comes and sees Solomon's wisdom. And when she sees it, she praises God. So she comes, 1 Kings 10, verse 9, Praise be to the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he's made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. So Solomon brings God's place. He rules God's people. He rules and brings God's blessing. And he is God's king. And yet we end with 1 Kings chapter 11. We end on a sad note. 1 Kings chapter 11, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonites, and Hittites. They were from nations about which, just think about the plurals there. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. A different woman for every day for three years. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart against other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as his father had done. What do we need wisdom for? Well, we need wisdom for salvation. This is where the Old Testament and the New Testament come into view. We need wisdom because we can't do this On our own, we can't obey in the way that we need to. We are foggy. But you see, God points all these promises to Jesus. The place we need is Jesus. The king we need is Jesus. The wisdom we need is Jesus. And Jesus is our sacrifice. His body is the place where we can meet with God. 
as he dies on the cross so we can meet with God. We've covered a lot of ground. There was still an awful lot more that I could have said. But just think of this, John chapter 6. Whose direction do you want? Yours or Jesus's? John chapter 6. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. What a God of wisdom we have. How worthy is he of our praise. Think how these things come together in his word in the Lord Jesus. I would love to give you a chance to talk about these things on your tables, but I think it would be more beneficial for us to pray now and then to sing that praise to the one who brings wisdom to us, the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we have traced the hand of your sovereign grace over chunks of the Bible tonight. And we've seen how sin spoils, and yet we've seen how sin doesn't knock your plan off course. And we see your king crowned in the strange place of the cross given for us. And we love you for it. We thank you that he brings us to the place of glory, your presence. He brings us the kingship we lack. And he brings us the wisdom that we are so woefully inadequately uh, equipped for. Father, help us to see him out of the fog in all his glory and help us to praise him uh, for that is right and good and altogether lovely. Amen.